Good morning. How are you doing? All right. I'm excited to be back. I uh, am uh, especially excited, excited about this message today, and I'm excited to see many of your faces today because I've been praying uh, for this message and this message series that we're starting a few months ago. Actually, about two years ago, God began to do some things in my heart about the future of our church and the vision of, um, of this church and just began to clarify some things. Um, but I, I didn't preach on it at the time. I didn't talk about it. I just kind of wait and let God move and begin to speak in me. And then over the last few months, as we've uh, realized that we're going to be moving out of this location, we're going to be moving to the city of Wiley. And God has really just begun to really invigorate me with a lot of uh, clarification on who we are as a church and what the um, what this the impact we could have on uh, the city of Wiley, the city of Saxe. All these things have excited me more and more. But I knew with this um, trip to Peru, I knew that there was a season before the trip where we just need. I just needed to be in the Word. I needed to be preparing uh, for God to move, but now that we're back, I I feel as if we're kind of unleashed, and we've got a month and a half to really set the vision, clarify the vision in our hearts, and begin to build anticipation of what God is about to do in your life and in my life so that we can fundamentally impact uh, the the cities and our friends and neighbors that we're going to be in. I heard a uh, a preacher story about a, a father who had a five-year-old girl, so I immediately could relate. Um, the story goes like this, that the, the father was really tired, wanted to go to sleep, and so he, um, his daughter kept coming and, and, and kind of nudging him, kind of bugging him, and so he, he, he wanted to give her a task so that he could at least get like 30 minutes of sleep or so. So he went and he got a newspaper, which for those of you that don't know what that is, that's a paper you used to be able to buy that would have kind of the, the news of the world. And, and on the front page of the paper was a world map. And so he took it and he tore it and he, and he tore this and he made a puzzle out of this world map. And he gave it and he said to his uh, five-year-old daughter, knowing she doesn't know geography, knowing that she wouldn't be able to put this together, he figured at least he'd get 30 minutes of sleep. He lays down and not two minutes later, his daughter comes with the map totally, perfectly taped together. And she says, here you go, dad, I did it. And he says, how could you have done this? I know that you don't know the world map. I know that you don't know how to do this. And she said, well, it was easy. You see, I noticed on the back side of the map was a picture of a little girl. And so I just put the little girl together and the world fell into place. I kind of see that as this, uh, my hope in this sermon is if we can put ourselves together, if we can see how the gospel, how Jesus Christ impacts ourselves, we can begin to see this is how we're going to change the world. This is how we're going to fundamentally change the city of Wiley and Saxe and Rowlett and all of the neighboring cities and your neighbors and how we're going to impact them is to see what God can do in your own life. But here's the burden that I had preparing this message. This message was originally just going to be the problem. I wanted to just bring you the problem. I even kind of had this in my mind. We'll kind of leave heavy today so that it'll make you want to come back and get filled up with the, with the, the right. But what happened is, as I begin to kind of analyze the problem that most of us face when it comes to life, the, the solution kept hitting me so much in the face that we can't get past the fact that there is a solution for every problem. And so I don't want to over-promise and under-deliver, but the, the title of this sermon is The Solution to All Your Problems, okay? So that's how passionate I am about this. But I've got this burden. The burden is this. 
is that in every church from here to Wiley, from here to Timbuktu, there are Christians, there are Christ followers, there are people that have spent their whole life going to church, hearing the gospel message and missing the gospel. In fact, some of us don't even know the difference between the gospel message and the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, if you just have the message, you might miss out on the life-changing power of the gospel. And so we see churches all over, full of people who are still struggling with shame and guilt and all of these promises that we're telling other people, hey, Jesus will free you from, but yet we're walking every day shackled to sins, shackled to pain, shame, fear, burdens that we are not meant to be shackled to. And we don't know how to free ourselves because we've heard this message, but we somehow missed the gospel. And so we're going to go back to the garden today. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to reset, and I'm going to show you what the ultimate problem we all face is, but I'm also going to show you that every problem you face has one solution. And you know what the solution is. In fact, you, you see glimpses of it all the time. If you've ever met somebody, and several times this will happen to me in the course of a year, I'll have somebody whose life is shattered. And they never come and they say, you know what, my, my life, my job is, is, is gone. You know what, if I could just get a new job, my life would be perfect. No one ever comes to me with just, if they could just get one thing, it's always, always a relationship. Understand, the thing that every single person, if you lose your job, the fear is, how am I going to take care of my family? If your marriage is crumbling, it's not, hey, what am I going to do tomorrow? It comes back to, I just got to have my family, I just got to have my relationships. Even this week, uh, this past week when we were in Peru, um, we had teammates start dropping left and right. We had more people sick on this trip than we've ever had. It was the biggest spiritual attack I've ever seen. And, and I had this moment where I, me as a leader, I went down and, I, and my prayer was, God, I can't go down. I'm the leader of this trip. I've got, you've, got to, you've got to heal me miraculously. And my prayer was that. And you know what? God did not do that. <laughs> I stayed sick the whole trip. You know how God fixed it? He raised up the other people on the team, and it was amazing. We didn't miss one area, even though every single person of our team, except for two people, went down, and I think one of them went down afterwards. So uh, it was incredible that God used relationships. He used people to solve the problems. And so every time you, whatever you're facing right now, and I want you to be thinking about what's your biggest problem right now? What is it right now that you're praying, God, fix this? Because the chances are, you're thinking of a thing, you're thinking of a resource. If I just had more money, if I just had a different job, if I just had a purpose that was meaningful to me, if I could just fix this thing, and you think that's your problem, and because you think that's your problem, you're never going to find the real solution. Now, some of you might be in a place that's so dark and deep that it becomes clear to you, you know what, I don't care about my job, I don't care about my car, I just want my, my relationships, and you begin to, to get clear. But when we go back to what I think is some of the most profound literature ever written, I think you're going to be surprised at how God uses relationships to solve problems. So let's do that. Let's go back to Genesis. It's going to be, I'm guessing in any Bible you open on page one or two, okay? So go to page one or two. You can also go to connectionpoint.life. I've got the notes in here. So just open up your browser on your phone. Go to connectionpoint.life. And the first card you see will be sermon notes. You can follow along there as well. 
Now, when we go back to the garden, there's um, some things trip people up. So I want to talk just a second about Genesis because I believe that uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is among the most profound literature you'll ever read. To me, it is phenomenal. It is amazing how divinely inspired it is. But a lot of questions come up. In fact, in about the 12th century um, after Christ, a Jewish rabbi named uh, Ibn Ezra noticed that Genesis didn't seem to be one work. He, in fact, he said it was, he, he put forth a hypothesis that it was redacted, that there was an editor. Basically, he, he called into question that, uh, that Moses just, just wrote this whole thing. And then over the past few years, there, I mean, past uh, few centuries, there's just been debates on Genesis and the historical accuracy of Genesis. And people have decided, you know, is, did Adam and Eve really live? All of these things. And what I, I want us to, to see is that if you get bogged down on questions like these, you're going to miss what I think is the pro, most profound piece of literature I believe ever written. This is how I believe Genesis came about, okay? I believe that Moses dictated Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy is, the, is a recap. I believe that after Moses died, Joshua, or a scribe, came back and summarized everything in the book of De- Deuteronomy. And so when we have the words in Genesis, when we have uh, the stories, I believe that that's somebody in the nation of Israel that knew Moses and was around him enough and wrote down what he said, Okay. And so, when we have Genesis chapter 1 through 11, you need to understand these are profoundly different than any other uh, literature in the Bible in that they are narratives, but they are not tied to history the way that Genesis chapter 12 through the rest of the Bible is. Um, In Genesis chapter 12, we can date Abraham. We know about when he lived. We, We can tell you where he was. These places, these historical places are there. Now, in some ways, we can do the same with Genesis 1 through 11, but understand Genesis 1 through 11 is not tied to history. It is prehistorical. We can't date and say this is when Noah happened. This is when Adam and Eve happened. It just can't. Now, there are people that have tried. They've used uh, dates through the genealogies. That is not an accurate way of doing it. That is not the purpose of those genealogies. And I say all that to let you know what I believe is happening in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is I believe that questions are being asked to Moses as the leader as this person who has a connection with God and and what he says is divinely inspired, I I believe that he's answering questions that people are asking. And rather than just asking um, Moses a question and him saying this or that, I believe he tells a story. And the reason I I, I believe you see this is because in in Genesis chapter 1, you have a creation poem. And then in Genesis chapter 2, there's another creation story. And Genesis chapter 1 ends with man and, and being created in the image of God. And Genesis chapter 2 starts with no man existing. It's an entirely different story. The reason for this is not that, uh, that one's wrong, one's right. But it's, I believe Moses is being asked questions. And the first question I believe he asked, that somebody asked him, is somebody said, Hey, hey Moses, how did we get here? And they've come from Egypt. They had come from this experience where the, all of these different gods existed and, and they created this and they created man for this reason and this reason. And so I believe Moses um, gives this divinely inspired story and he says, listen, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he tells this story of creation in the form of a poem and he says it so that they'll understand it wasn't a, a plethora of gods. It wasn't a um, uh, God's warring. It was one God in control of all things. And, and the answer, Genesis 1 is answering a question. That question is not how did God create? It's not how many days. The question is who? And I believe if you 
It's okay to, to ponder those things, but I believe if you miss the who, you miss the point of why he was answering the question. All that to say, when we get to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, to me, Moses is answering the most profound question that any of us will ever wrestle with. It's the most philosophical debate that, I mean, the powerful debate you, you, you'll hear. Why is the world like it is? Why? How can there be a good God? How can there be an all-powerful God? How can there be an all-knowing and good God, and yet the world is like this? And you look at Genesis chapter 2 all the way through 11, and it's a story of how we got like this. How can God exist, and yet things be this bad? I believe that this question is posed to Moses, and rather than just giving you a one-off you know, answer, he answers with a story that's so profound it filters our worldview to this day. And if you really dig into it, what we're going to do today, I hope to show you how divinely inspired this piece of literature is, so much so that it still answers this question. It starts off with a garden. You may know this. I'm going to summarize a lot of it. What's interesting about this garden is there's no man at first, and, and then he creates man. And one of the reasons that I'm not, it's not entirely that I, that I think that it's a story is because God, or, or Moses, names the man Adam. Adam means man. So he's telling a story, and he says the name of the man was man. So there's an allegorical element to this, no matter how you read it. You have to understand that Adam is representing all men, Okay? He 100% could accurately have been this man who, who historically, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is Adam is you and me. How did we get like this? So Adam's in this garden, and it's a perfect garden. You've got to understand this. And there are two trees in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant in, the side, uh, in sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are many trees, but there are two trees that are named specifically. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now those are not haphazardly named. Those are intentionally named, divinely named. Verse 15 goes on to say this. The Lord God took the man, took Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of, the tree of, of the, any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there are two trees, but only one of them has a restriction on it, which means the tree of life is open. Adam is able to eat of this tree of life. There is no restriction put on this tree of life. Now, we're going to find out if you read on in uh, Genesis chapter 3, the tree of life had this power. It represents uh, his relationship with God, man's relationship with God. When he eats of this tree, it restores his life. He has eternal life as long as he eats of this tree. Anytime that he's hurting uh, or, or sick, he can go and he can eat of this tree and this tree will restore him. He has eternal life. But there's some other nuances about the garden that we sometimes miss. You see, there's no law in the garden. And in fact, there's no right or wrong in the garden. Do you see, ever think about this? We always think that 
The garden that Adam was perfect because Adam is navigating, he's always making wise choices. And when I think about that, I think about, oh my gosh, I hope I never go to heaven and that I've got to make right choices all the time because we are in trouble. Joel is going to be the new Adam. He's going to screw, and Eve, he's going to screw everything up. I have this fear that if I get put in a perfect heaven, I'm going to screw it up real quick. And then there's going to be a whole story written on how I screwed up the world. And we're going to have to do this all over again. But what happens is if you read, there is no right or wrong in the garden. There's only God in the tree of life, which means Adam's walking along and he stubs his tail and he, uh, his toe and then he, he yells out a four-letter word and there's no reaction by God because there's no right or wrong because he didn't do anything wrong because right or wrong doesn't exist. There's just God. He breaks his arm, he trips and falls. What does he do? He drags himself to his creator who's right there and his creator says, I formed you from the dust and he can just reform him. Any problem that happens, whatever goes on, it's simply a matter of where's God? Can I get to God? Do I know God? And he's got this perfect relationship with God and so there is no problem that he cannot overcome. There is no guilt, there is no shame, there is no even question. We don't even know what he's wearing at this point because there's no shame, there's no guilt And there's certainly no fear because the creator of everything is right in front of him and there's a perfect relationship. And he's got a good job too. He puts and he works this garden and the garden is not there with thorns and thistles and dangers. The garden is there as a blessing. But what's fascinating about this is God looks at this and there are only two relationships at this point. Only two relationships. There's one man, but there's two relationships. There's the man's relationship with God, which is perfect. But then there's the man's relationship with himself. See, every day, Adam has to get inside his mind. What am I doing this and that? And why am I naming this? Does it matter? And I don't know what the exact problem is, but there's an existential problem that happens within Adam before any fall ever occurs because God looks at the man and he sees, man, there's something not right here. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper. And I want you to understand this. Before any wrong was occurred, God sees there's a broken relationship here in this man within his, himself. That he's trying to live out his faith and his relationship with me just with himself. And this is not the way it's, it's supposed to happen. And so he fixes this existential crisis. He fixes this, this purpose or whatever lack of purpose. He fixes it by giving a relationship. He creates a woman, another person, and puts her in the garden. And now he gives a context to Adam. God gives a context to Adam to where now Adam is now living out his faith with someone else. There's so many of us that think, you know what, perfection if I really, my, my life with God is all it, is what it's about. I can be spiritual and I can have a right relationship with God and it's private. But understand, even when you go into the garden, you begin to see when we just try to live out a private relationship with us and God, and we try to say, I don't need church, I don't need anyone else, we are going to be fundamentally broken. Even if we haven't sinned, even before sin exists, there is a, an existential crisis that happens when we try to live out our faith with God, our relationship with God, only in the context of ourselves. So God fixes this by giving someone else. Here's someone, Adam, now that you can love the way I love. Here's a purpose you can have in, in investing in her and her investing in you. And now you can have a complete relationship with me because you have these relationships with others. And you cannot live out your faith alone. 
And we learn that in the garden. Before a sin ever occurs, before brokenness in the relationship with God, there is just this identification of God saying, this, my, your relationship with me is more than just you and me. It's going to affect everyone around you. And in verse 25, this is what I, I think is the, the, the pinnacle of life. It says that there's... The man, he's got a, uh, an unbroken relationship with his, with his wife. He's got an unbroken relationship with himself. And he's got an unbroken relationship with God. And this is what it says. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, I think there's much more going on here than just uh, the, the ramifications of, of having a husband and wife naked. I think that there is just, there's this beauty. I hope this verse lasted centuries or years. We don't have a timetable. I hope this lasts because this was perfection. They're living in a place where when they had arguments, and I believe they probably got into to disagreements. You cannot live with other people and not get into disagreements. But I don't think it was a, a sin, this and that, because sin did not exist at this point. There was no good and evil at this point. It was just God. And so there's a, a relationship here, and they're trying to work it out. And what do they do if they, they get into a relationship or they get to a problem they can't face? They just go to God. They can go to God at any time, and they can look at him face to face. And God says, I can restore this. And just as, as I can fix a broken bone or I can heal it, I can heal anything. And every part of this relationship at any moment is being continually renewed. And whenever they begin to feel this this hunger or longing, they can go to the tree of life and they can eat of the tree of life. They can go straight to God, that, that tree of life, that symbol of an unbroken relationship with God. So eventually we get to the fall and understand that all is right. There is no good and bad. It's not that they're making all the right choices. It's that there's only one choice to make. Where is God? Go to God. That's the only relationship. That's the only, it's all about the relationship with God. You know, my wife and I, we get into arguments sometimes. In fact, the other day uh, I came home and my attitude was a little off. I'll, I'll be the first to admit. But what was interesting is we were both being sharp with each other, but at no point did I, I feel like she needed to apologize to me. Or We just knew, hey, our relationship is fine because it's so, our relationship is so much more than just this discussion. But what happened is, our, our, our discussion turned towards somebody that was in need, and we, we, we just dropped that, uh, that um, negative attitude, and we began to talk about this, this person, about how we could help and step in and help them. And it was amazing. It was just a perfect uh, example to me of how when you are in a right relationship, it's not about good and bad. It's simply about that relationship. So when we get to the fall of man and how all of your problems came in and how Moses defined, here's what happened to all of the problems with this fall, you need to take some notes on what actually happens in the fall because it's more than just, hey, they made one bad choice, sin entered. It's very profound to me that the tree is named the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is not the tree of sin, which if you or I wrote the book, we would have called it the tree of sin. We would have made it very clear. There is the tree of life, the tree of sin. Don't eat of the tree of sin. And if that was the way it was, well then, Adam and Eve, they might screw up, but at least I know I can go the whole time without eating of the tree of sin. I could have avoided that, I think, that one choice. But what happens when they eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil even the manipulation to get them there is a relational attack. See, a serpent comes and the serpent says to them, did he really say, and he questions your relationship with God, did God really say you would die? You won't surely die. 
You know, if you eat this, you'll become like God. And he begins to speak to this relationship the man has with himself where the man is the created, but he begins to kind of poke him and say, you know, you could be like God. And he begins to, to drive a wedge between the relationship between man and God. And then he, he begins to say, and he's playing the wife against each other, and he begins to, did he really say that? Go back, who, what did he say? And you can see the relational jabs that he's making. And so they eat of the fruit. And what happens next is not a sudden death. It is a slow fade. But I want you to see what happened when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not that sin is there and now we're all sinful. It's that a maze of confusion was unleashed. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about this. What happens is that after they eat of this, every single decision they make in their life becomes a decision of good or evil. Their eyes are opened, it says, to where now they can, they can make their own choices of good and evil. And all of a sudden, their life is no longer about God and their relationship with God. Now every choice they make becomes right or wrong. It leads them closer or further from God. And it's a maze that is unnavigable. I think I said that right. Now, first thing that happens after this is Adam says, hey, I'm hungry. I want to go to the Mexican food tree. And Eve is like, no, let's go to the Italian food tree. And all of a sudden, the decision is right or wrong. And all of a sudden, they're beginning to think in their minds, you know what, am I good enough for have I made the right decisions? And all of a sudden, this, this dynamic of being in this garden where it used to, to not worry about, did I do right or wrong? I just needed to be near God. That's all it was about. Now, every decision I make is good or evil. And all of a sudden, they hear God, and it says that they hid from him. And they used to run to him when they had a problem. When they, whenever there was any, anything that, that they needed fixed, they could run to God. But now there's this confusion. Every decision, should I go to him? Should I, maybe he's going to be mad. And there is, a, there is a fear that has entered in that has never been in the garden. There is a shame. The first thing they do is they try to cover and hide themselves because they realize that they're naked. And, and before they were naked and unashamed, but now they're ashamed. And the thing is, is that nothing changed from God's perspective. He's not shaming them, but now their decisions have made a confusion to where they are, are feeling a shame that God is not putting on them. And their life becomes a, a life of shame before God, fear of God, and guilt. And all of this came from them. It's not something God is putting on. The only thing God wants is he's coming to them. He wants to know them. The ultimate part of the fall that you need to understand, the ramifications hit all over. The first thing it did, it separated from man from God. This, this shame, fear, and guilt separated the sin. Those were the consequences, and it separated us from God. But it also separated us from ourselves. It made, we began confusion. Should I try to be God? Should, am I good enough? Every decision that I make now, is, is my accomplishments enough? Am I good enough? Do I earn what God has given me? Do I deserve? And everything about my life now is about accomplishment or it's about being good enough or not good enough. And it's about me navigating a maze that every decision I make makes another branch and you cannot navigate it and the confusion is immeasurable. And then every other relationship gets affected. God says to the woman, you used to be in a perfect relationship with your husband, but now there's going to be a power dynamic between you. He's going to be over you now, and it's going to be a lot of strife, and 
You can have as strong a feminist movement as you want, but this is a spiritual, spiritual problem, and you'll never be able to legislate it or, or moralize it away. There is something much deeper. This is a relational problem. And, and he says, every child you bring in, there are only two people in the world right now. So every other relationship is going to come through, and the story is going to come through Eve having a child. And so he says, every child that comes through you, Eve, is now going to be born out of strife and pain. In other words, every relationship in this world is now affected. No one's getting into this world where they're not going to be in a world of strife, confusion, tangled web that they cannot navigate. But the ultimate, ultimate penalty is Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. See, God's speaking to himself because remember, God is triune. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We have the Holy Spirit, which indwells us when we, uh, when we follow Christ. And then we'll also have God the Father created. You have them having a the discussion, and they say, you know what, we've got to nip this in the bud. And so they do something that seems like a punishment, but it's wise. They put a guard in front of the tree of life, and they say, now that things are so convoluted, so messed up, we're not going to let them go into perpetuity. We're going to cut off the tree of life so that they will not live forever. And this is a good thing. It's foreshadowing the fact that this state you are in is not going to last forever. This brokenness is not going to last forever. There's going to be a time when this is no more. But God does something. It says in verse 23 there of chapter 3, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground which he was taken. The ultimate fall is that we were taken out of the garden. We were taken out of this context where life was about one thing, about being in the presence of God, about, about every single problem we face could be taken before God and God could redeem it right then. God could guide us right then. In fact, we never even got to that point because we knew his heart so much. We were with him. We were just there. And it wasn't about am I sinning or being good enough. The question wasn't even being asked. It was simply do you know him? The same way that when... My, my, my kids are really hurting and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's not, a, I don't look at them with, with anger and guilt. And, and it's simply, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to walk with you. And we lost that when we lost the garden. And God says, you've got to go out of here because there is now a hindrance between this guilt, this shame, this fear you feel. It's the result of this sin, this is this result of this rebellion, and it's broken this relationship, but not just this relationship. It broke you. You're back to that existential, what's my purpose? What's every choice? Am I good enough? Am I not good enough? Everything about you has been broken, and you don't even realize it. And every relationship you have now has power dynamics that were never intended to be there, and you can't just fix them by going to God and saying, God, can you work this out with us, or, or how do I love more? And I can't see God clear enough to just love and always forgive the way that he loves me, and so these, these, every relationship is broken, and what happens is you and I go through life tearing down everything. In fact, if you read Genesis 2 through 11, it's the story of what happens when we are just left on our own in this broken, confused world. And it doesn't get good. It gets worse and worse. It is a downward spiral. But in Genesis chapter 11, God comes, or 12, God comes along and he grabs a man and he says, I'm not going to let you do this forever. And, and, and what he does is he chooses a man and he chooses a, a, a nation and he gives them a law. And understand, the law is not the fix. You cannot fix the broken relationship by simply navigating. The law is just there 
to navigate this. God says, hey, now that you're in this broken world to where every decision is, is mass confusion, I'm going to give you the rules. I'm going to give you some laws. And if you follow these laws, you'll begin to see where I'm going. And so he gives these laws. And many of us, we live our lives trying to follow these laws. But understand, the law is not the fix. The law is how we navigate a broken world, but it's not getting us back to the garden. I want you to think about your biggest problem, whatever it is. I want you to think about maybe your neighbor, maybe somebody that your family who's going through something. And in your mind, you know what they think they need is not what they need. They think they need, if I could just get more money, if I could just get over the hump here, I'd be fine. If I could just get, you know, a new job, if I could just find my purpose. But what you really know about them is that it's much deeper than that. You know, on my street alone, the person, uh, uh, there's a, a person across the street and they're going through a divorce and they're going to lose their house. It's gonna, they're going to lose everything because they're trying to destroy each other. And I look at them and I just say, you know what, if, if you could just talk with one another, you may not save your marriage, but man, you would not wreck your life the way that you're about to wreck your life and your kid's life. And it's destroying me inside thinking about it is not that, that, that it's one part. If they could just see the brokenness they have in themselves, they would quit pointing the finger at, at the people being their problem. They'd realize I'm broken and the way I'm going about this. And it stems because my relationship with God is not right. I don't see myself the way that God sees me. Or I, I look down the street and there's a woman whose life has been wrecked and she blames a man. But I know, I've known her long enough to know it's not her. I mean, it's not him, it's her. That there's a need, there's a hole she's been trying to fill, and it is never going to be filled. She is broken in ways that another man is not going to fix. In fact, he's probably going to ruin it even worse. But I can see probably what's going to happen. And I could see this over and over again, and it's not just in them. I see it in me too. I see myself trying to, to fix my problems by taking a four-step approach. I'll go read a book, try to solve my problem when I know, you know what? This is the same problem I had last week and last week and last week. I am broken inside. And until I begin to try to find this relational healing, I'll never get past it. But that's what's exciting about the gospel, about what God gave us. The rest of the Bible, the law, all that is preparing us for the fix. But understand this, you cannot fix a relational problem without a relationship. You only fix relational problems with a relationship. And so God's ultimate fix is not to give you more money. It's not to give you this or that. God fixed our problem with a relationship. The same way he fixed Adam, his, he clarified Adam's issue of, hey, let me give you a relationship. God fixes problems with relationship. And he sees us navigating an unnavigable world. And he sees us trying to, to, to go through life with so many choices that he knows no one can make it. And so what does he do? 1 John chapter 3 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, so that in him there is no sin. He comes into this world, and he navigates it perfectly, and he shows us, I can do this. I'm the only one that can do this. And it says he came to take away our sin. And most of us, we read that, and he say, oh, well, he's going to forgive me of my sins. That's great. And we think, you know, that's, that's great that I, when I accepted Christ, he forgave me of my sins. The problem is, is I've sinned about a billion and a half times since I accepted Christ. The problem is, I don't feel restored anymore. And it's because we're missing a key aspect of this. The gospel isn't the message that Jesus came, died on the cross, and he took away your sins. It's better than that. It's that he did that, and because he did that, you were restored in a relationship with God. You were back, invited back to the garden. 
When he says you're in no sin, it's not that you are not going to make bad decisions. It's that he's taking you out of the, pa- the, the paradigm, the dynamic, to where every decision you make is a decision of good or bad. And it's only one more question. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Well, that's hard to do. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You see, the key is this, this phrase that's going to pop up in Jesus' words quite a bit. Know him. It is about a relationship with Jesus. When you have a relationship with Jesus, you are invited not simply to believe a message. You are invited into a relationship with a holy, living God. And you are invited back to the garden, into a place where your life is not judged by your decisions, right or wrong. Your life is judged simply by, do you know him? The gospel is so much more freeing than most of us have. Most of us think that it's going to give us a magical power to navigate life, but it was never intended to. You are invited back to the garden, back to a relationship. And if you're in this relationship with God, everything else becomes clear. You know, when my uh, uh, daughter, we readopted her, and it, I had a conversation with Balai, who's an Ethiopian, and she's Ethiopian. And so he said, you know what, I think it's beautiful that you readopted her because now she is your heir. Now, no matter what happens, she'll always know that she is a member of a family and that it's not about whether she deserves this or that. It's just about being in the family. And that's exactly what we were invited into, back into a relationship of where life is not about you being right or wrong all the time, overwhelmed with every bad decision, that inner voice in your mind that's telling you you're not good enough or that you'll never be good enough. God is saying, I want to take you away from that to where every decision is simply one question. Do you know me? And if you know me, you are no longer in sin. Now, that's not saying you're not going to make bad decisions. It's not saying that, that, that you're not going to strive to, to, to be more like Christ. But if you know him, Your entire life becomes simply, are you in a relationship? If you are, you are in the garden. You are in with God. Here's what I know. Right now, in this room, there are so many of you that have this week felt as if you were not good enough. You have felt a shame about a decision you made, and you may have been going to church your whole life. You may be, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you are a Christian. I'm simply saying there are so many of us that have missed what the gospel really is. The gospel is not just a message. The gospel is God. The gospel is a relationship with God, and the good news is simply the message of how we get there. But the good news, the real good news, is that you can go back to the garden, that you can be in a paradigm to where every single moment of your life is not about you being good enough, about you accomplishing enough, about you being right because you have made all the right decisions. You can go to a place where it's just do you know him, and he loves you, and every decision is simply a pursuit of you knowing your creator more. Right now, I want to... We're going to break this down, apply this in three ways. The first way, though, is if in your life you felt guilt this week, I want to invite you back to Jesus. I want to invite you back into a relationship with your creator to where your life is not about what you're going to do this week, what you're going to accomplish. Were you a good enough mother? Were you a good enough provider? Were you good enough? Did you make all the right decisions? But instead, I simply want to invite you back to Jesus who says, listen, if you know me, 
you are no longer a sinner. Not because you haven't sinned, but because the paradigm doesn't exist anymore. It is about a relationship. If you want to make that decision, I want to encourage you. Or maybe if you just want to, to reconnect with it, I want to encourage you to take in the back of, your, uh, um, back of the seat back, there's a I have decided card, and I want to challenge you. If you want to rededicate, if you want to just commit your life to Christ today, I hope there are some of you that have been in church your whole life, and you just say, you know what, I need more than just the gospel message. I need the gospel. So that's the first thing, because it's important to me that you get excited about Jesus about you understand what life is like when the paradigm breaks, what life is like when every decision is not weighing in on you, when every decision is not about are you good enough, when you simply live life free knowing I'm in relationship with God. Because where we're going as a church, we need everybody to be excited about God, about a relationship with God. We, we don't need a whole church full of people who are, who are pressed by our sins and feeling guilty every day because the world does not need that. They already feel it. The people who are in church right now may be, they may be shackled and not free because they're hearing gospel, but they're missing God. Where we're going, this is the second thing I want to challenge you on. Where we're going as a church, we're going to a place where we're going to be the message of hope for not just the people far from God, but even the people who have known God their whole life. God's been clarifying with me this passion of we've got to have the gospel so red hot in our life, and a lot of us are missing it. Over the next few weeks, I want to encourage you to be here every single week at church. Not at church. We are the church at this place. And it's going to look a little different. I want to warn you. If this is your first time or if you're new, you're inviting you into something very new. Over the next few weeks, we're going to begin to prepare what the next season of our church, what the move to Wiley looks like. We're calling it our Wiley launch team, and you are on the team, okay? But I want to encourage you to be here because it's going to be a little different. I'm still going to preach. We're still going to have music, but we're also going to begin to have all of the volunteer opportunities, all of the different things that need to take place in order for us to do this well, and we're going to do it very well. And so we're going to have times of training and retraining. And if you've been on a team you're for the last six years in this church and you think, I know how to greet, I know how to work with the kids, we're going to go through a, a training and make sure that every single person, whether you're new to a team or whether you've been on a while, that we are ready for the community we're going to. Because when they come and they receive us, they're going to, find, they're going to be expecting a new church that's brand new because they've never heard of us. But they're going to find a church that's so ready to receive them, so ready to invite them into the garden, that they're going to be blown away. And so we're going to spend the next five, six weeks really preparing for what God is going to do. And so I want to encourage you to be here. The final thing, though, I want to encourage us, and this is, uh, I I sent an email to our membership about this. This Some of y'all are probably confused and nervous about this, but I want to call for the next 14 days the entire church to a time of prayer and fasting. But I want to be clear Some of you are very overwhelmed at the idea of fasting for 14 days. We're not calling every single person to fast completely for 14 days. What we're saying is for the next 14 days, we want everyone in our church with a spirit of fasting and prayer. So some of you might fast the entire 14 days. That's great. A food fast, water. We want you to drink fluids, but a fasting for food. And when you go to eat, we want you to, instead of eating, we want you to spend time praying for our church. And for the future of this church and the people that we will reach. 
But some of you, uh, you have jobs and you can't fast for 14 days. Some of you, like my wife, is a nurse. So she's uh, going to be a little more selective. I'm going to be a little more selective. I'm on medication. I have to eat right now. And so I'm going to be more selective. Some of you are going to camp as counselors. So we understand that. But we want you to strategically and prayerfully pray about what days you can fast. And we want you to fast for whatever God calls you to over the next 14 days. But we want our entire church in the spirit of spiritual preparation, believing that God has something so powerful he's about to do, but it's not going to happen out there until it happens in here. And so we're going to deny ourselves knowing that God is going to fill us. And when you feel those hunger pains, I hope it draws you just a little bit of knowing that's not real starvation, y'all. You're not dying. When you feel those hunger pains, though, I want you to be drawn back to Jesus' words. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God and realize that God is in this and God is doing a great work in this church. And so over the next few weeks, um, in fact, if, on connectionpoint.life, there's a place where you, if you want, I'm gonna, we're going to be sending emails to our membership, but if you want to join us on this journey, you can let us know, connectionpoint.life on the sermon notes, uh, and I'll add you to our communication. But listen, everyone you know Everyone you know is hurting. And they don't know how to fix it. They think they need to fix it by getting something they don't have. When God is going to fix it by restoring a relationship, you already have with him. And he did it through Jesus Christ. And and the vision of where this goes is in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. Jesus gives his friend John a picture of what, where this is all going when we are in a relationship. He says this, An angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river. So there's a river flowing out of the throne of God. Jesus is there, the presence. And you have this dilemma. Well, what if I'm on the left side of the, the river? What about the right side? But... Jesus has solved this decision. He says, The tree of life with its fruit is on either side of the river, yielding its fruit in every month. The leaves are for healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and its servants will worship Him. It goes on to say they will see His face. You understand the restoration is not that you're going to be able to make every perfect decision. The restoration is you're going to see the face of God and the tree of life no matter what choice you make. The tree of life, the relationship with God, the eternal presence of God is going to be with you. That's the promise. That's the gospel. I want to close just by telling you the most profound lesson I ever learned about relationship was when I was in college and I was failing every choice I made was a bad choice. I was failing out of school. I was getting in some relation, bad relationships with my friends and it was just not going well and I came home suicidal ready to give up. My dad saw this and my dad stopped me as I was telling him of all the mistakes I've made, of all the things, how I was failing out of school. I was never going to accomplish anything. I was a loser. I was going to this and he just stopped me and he said, you are my son and I know this. No matter what happens from here on out, you will always have a place. And if you are here, we'll figure it out together. And when my dad told me that, it changed everything about my life. 
I went back to school and I passed my classes because I had this burden lifting off of me of it's not how good I am. It's not about what I accomplished. I knew I always had a place in my father's house. Every one of us should get up every day more excited about Jesus than we can ever imagine because life is about going back to that garden invited into the presence of our father. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for not just the message of the gospel, but for the good news itself. That you entered into your own creation and you made a way where there was no way. And all of us that are feeling shame and hurt and wondering, why do we even go to church? It's not going to change a thing. Lord, I pray today our eyes are open. I pray today we see you in a new way. And instead of striving to be better people, we simply strive one thing to know you, and to every day know you more, and to see your face, and not live in guilt, or shame, or fear, but live in the love of our Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who made a way, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells in us, and who shouts down those voices of shame and fear whenever they creep into our mind. Lord, we may never get to be perfect on this side of heaven, but we know there's a place coming, there's a time coming when it won't be about our decisions, everything will simply be about seeing your face and knowing you. Lord, let us take this message, this hope, into the next few weeks and into the next uh, location so that every person we know will be filled with life in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.